welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trickhauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. The term child soldiers is very evocative. One might think of young children being drugged or forced into fighting, traumatized and exploited. In popular culture, films like Blood Diamond, Beasts of No Nation, and of course, campaigns like the infamous Coney 2012 viral intervention have painted vivid images of child soldiers in Sierra Leone, Ghana, and Uganda. However, child soldiers are not a purely modern or exclusively African phenomenon. Child soldiers have been used throughout history, including during World War II by the Allies. And in conflicts around the world today, child soldiers, or minors in conflict, are not uncommon. Venke Irenhauge is a senior researcher at PRIO. She currently leads the project Minors in Disarmament, Demobilization, and Reintegration, DDR, Processes, the Gender Dimension. Her previous research has included DDR and gender around the world, conflict in Haiti, environmental change and economic development, and political crises in Madagascar. Her latest research has now been released in a report titled Nobody Listens to Us, Minors in DDR Processes, the Gender Dimension. There, she analyzes the experiences of children in conflict in both Nepal and Colombia and finds that their experiences are not always as clear-cut as the popular narratives found around the world and followed by many international organizations in their policymaking. Welcome to the podcast, Venke. Thanks for joining me today. Um, we had a really great pre-chat before we even started recording the real podcast, so I feel like I've I've gotten so much background on this, and I'm so excited for people to hear about it. We're going to discuss minors in conflict, which is such an interesting and really important topic, and the way that you came to it is also quite interesting. So before we actually get into the research, um, why did you get interested in this area of research? Actually, that was I've done a lot of field work uh, in my um, research, and actually this was during field work in Nepal on a project focusing on the reintegration process of uh, uh, ex-combatants from the People's Liberation Army in Nepal. So it was not particularly focused on minors; this was adults. But as I as I got along, um, I realized that several of the interviewees had had uh, entered the this uh, Maoist army uh, as minors and that they still were minors when the de- uh, reintegration process began and so i also realized that their uh, stories were were sort of different they were much more discontent and had lots of problems in many kinds of way which i will talk more about later but that made me ask myself why what, what why how come that the minors are worse off than the adult soldiers? Uh, and what are the UN regulations on this? So I started to look into the UN regulations and I found that there is a special, it's a long name, a UN uh, Integrated Disarmament, Demobilization and Reintegration Standards. So I just refer to this as the UN standards. It's easier. Uh, and, and these standards suggest to separate uh, uh, children and uh, adolescents below 18 years from the adult soldiers 
very quickly uh, upon after the uh, peace agreement has been signed and very quickly upon returned uh, or, or, um, arrival sorry to um, demobilization zone so 48 hours afterwards and then these standards also suggest to uh, reunite the miners with their family and local community and uh, I I started to because I've done field work in lots of countries and uh, I saw uh, in my readings that these standards were very much based on African experiences. Um, and they sort of made a model out of experiences from some African countries. It, this also appears very much in the academic literature uh, um, and uh, generalizes these for, for children and, and adolescents from all kinds of conflicts. Uh, and these these African experiences are particularly from countries like Uganda, Sierra Leone, and Liberia, um, and they very much uh, give the impression of um, forced that these children are, are victims of forced recruitment, and also sometimes very bad. Uh, they are abducted, they are drugged, uh, and taught how to become violent. And um, this is very different from what I have seen in some of the other conflicts that I've been working on. I've been working on Guatemala, Colombia, Nepal, and many different countries. So I thought that maybe there is a need here to um, get more experiences from other contexts. Um, and maybe these UN standards need to be uh, changed or amended based on, also based much more on dialogue with the miners to hear their experiences. So that was how I started my project, uh, with, uh, which is focused on Colombia and Nepal, uh, with interviews with miners from, from ex-miners from FARC in Colombia and from the People's Liberation Army in Nepal. So I have altogether 47 interviews from these countries. So I noticed that you use the wording minors or minors in conflict instead of child soldiers. And I think that a lot of people, if they heard child soldiers, um, they think of some of the cases that you referred to that are covered more in the literature, uh, really awful cases of, of children. Yeah. Being drugged, um, maybe, maybe, uh, given alcohol, drugs, taught to be very violent, taken away from their families. Um, but that's not really the, the experience of the people that you interviewed. Um, so why do you use the wording minors in conflict? And, and do you think that that's a, a better way to put it instead of child soldiers? Yes. Uh, actually, I, I found that child soldiers are so much associated exactly with these particular cases from Africa that I found it problematic because I also saw uh, in the countries where I work that um, children in armed groups or ad adolescents were not always uh, participating in battle. They were doing cultural work. They were um, doing all kinds of other types of tasks, communication, uh, and so I found that concept not to be very much 
uh, not covering. So I, w I also wanted a more neutral, more objective term that doesn't give you those associations in the first place. So minors is, is simply a, refers to age, below 18 years. So I think that's more, it's a better starting point, actually. It gives room for more, more discussion and more, uh, uh, yeah, different thoughts about yeah, and I mean, you've kind of already started to go into it, but you mentioned that these these miners were not necessarily fighting. Um, they, they were doing a lot of things. To be clear, uh, and you said this to me before, it doesn't mean that the FARC uh, or the the Nepalese um, People's Liberation Army was were angels. They were not perfect, but um, the, the miners were doing things besides fighting. So maybe you can... Just going now a little bit into why did the miners want to join up? Yes, um, I've. I've um, let me. Maybe I should say first uh, what I mean by voluntarily, because I, I've interviewed, as I said, uh, altogether forty-seven miners, twenty-two from Colombia and twenty-five from Nepal, and uh, I found that. Uh, 43 of these had joined voluntarily, whereas I would say four uh, in Nepal, uh, four were indirectly forced. So by voluntarily, I mean that they were not abducted. They were not physically, physically or psychologically threatened to become members. So it was a conscious choice by these miners to join, although they live in a very harsh reality with extreme poverty, some, some of them with abuse from their parents. But it was a kind of, they made their own evaluation of their situation and found that th their best option was to join this guerrilla force. And in many cases also, they have heard positive things that it was well organized, they had programs, there you could learn to read and write uh, because so many of these miners were taken out of school to do child work at home before they joined the, the these army these uh, guerrilla groups, so so that is my concept of voluntarily and and just before I go a bit more on to the reasons why why they joined, uh, maybe I should just also mention this that these four ones in Nepal which I referred to as indirectly forced, uh, the the Maoists had a call that. Uh, each family should join, should um, participate uh, in the PLA with one member. That was their, their uh, challenge. And I think that in some areas or by some groups and, and families, this was taken very seriously and by, by others not. So these, these four, they had felt a certain pressure that they, was, they were the only one in the family that were... Um, because their brother or sister couldn't or whatever, and that, that therefore they should join. So for that explanation, uh, in general, I would say there were several reasons they gave for joining, but uh, the most prominent was simply extreme poverty and marginalization. Many of them told that they did child work, they did hard work, they had to leave school, they had 10 siblings, several of their siblings were dead, their father or mother was dead. And also some of them were already internally displaced. Um, some had uh, experienced army bombing in their area. 
Uh, there was even one of the miners in Nepal who had been tortured because she had uh, sympathized with Maoists, uh, even when she was a miner at the police station. And, um, and also in Nepal, you have uh, the caste system. So some of them had came from the lower castes, especially the Dalits, and had experienced extreme discrimination. And they knew that the Maoists uh, banned such discrimination. And so that was also a reason. Uh, and some had even experienced violence and abuse by their parents and run away from their parents. So there were many different reasons, actually, but particularly, I would say, poverty and marginalization was extremely important. We talked before, you t discussed some of the educational opportunities that these military groups gave the kids. Why was that? <clears throat> Why was it that they maybe wanted these these kids to get a for some form of education? Um, what would be the, the military group's motivation for that? I think, uh, I mean, in the, in the first place, it's necessary to read and write how it's simply to maneuver around if there are information, written information somewhere, dangers. It is very important to, to be able to understand what's written somewhere, like mines, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, but I also think it was part of their ideology because they are very much against inequality. And these were poor children that hadn't access to the same, um, uh, to education like, like children from more well-off families because they had to, they were so poor they had to work instead to help their mother or father to survive or family. Can you talk a little bit about the structures of, of these organizations in terms of equality? Um, this is something that you mention in your research as being another big motivator for the miners wanting to actually stay with these units that had really become like family to them. Yeah. Uh, yes, this was something I was really, I was really, I, I had heard on beforehand that they, they put some emphasis on gender equality and so on. But I was really, I must admit, I was quite surprised uh, about the degree uh, of gender equality, and so they they had both in FARC and in in the People's Liberation Army, they put much emphasis on uh, on gender equality in terms of so that they could do same types of tasks uh, and were treated equal uh, uh, in in more practical terms, but uh, particularly also with regards to sexual relation uh, relationships. So. Um, there were um, the girls and women had females had very strong protection. Uh, well, also males, but um, of course it's it's often the the females that are violated. So they had protection against rape and any kind of uh, gendered violence was banned and punished. And um, there was also put much emphasis on fidelity. They didn't like that um, you had many partners. I think for several reasons, they were also, it was safer and it was better for, for, for the couples. Uh, but also because they didn't want diseases. So FARC was, uh, was uh, um, they had to ask the commander if they wanted a relationship. 
And that was also because then they were asked about if they were healthy and not have any diseases because they didn't want to have spread of diseases. Um, and then also there was a check on if they really knew each other and uh, if this was um, seemed to be a, uh, a relationship that was good and based on love. So at least this was this was what they told me. Uh, and um, in addition, in, in Fark, one of the miners he uh, that I interviewed, he mentioned that gays and lesbians were also respected. Uh, so it was quite progressive in a in a society that is backwards in many ways on, on gender equality. In Nepal, you also had a different issue, which is the the, the caste system. So um, they had marriages for couples. So it was, and you had intercaste marriages there, uh, and it was they were very concerned about having an, a, the same process for all. Uh, all couples, whether they came from different cases and so on. So there was full respect. And they even went as far as to forbid the use of slang in uh, the Maoist, uh, the PLA, because it might insult uh, one of the genders or it might insult somebody from a lower caste. So they were very strict about the language used. So, um, of course, these were things that uh, experiences that these miners brought with them. So at the moment of when the peace agreement was signed and the DDR process, the, the reintegration process began, uh, they um, they were then um, because those who were still below 18 years, they were separated from the adult soldiers. Uh, in theory, they have a choice, but uh, like, for example, many of those from FARC told me that we felt like we didn't have a choice because the pressure from the organizations on us were, was so strong that we felt that we had to, to accept the separation. Uh, and so uh, this was very difficult. Then they lost all this. They had to go back to very traditional societies, and this was um, particularly difficult for many of the females. I don't know if I should say a little bit more about how it was to, exactly more about the separation, how it was to go back to families and afterwards. Yeah, well, I mean, I was going to ask, um, because obviously these are minors who have lived also very traumatic lives even before they they had joined what I'm sure was a very difficult lifestyle. Um, and I mean, I can only imagine that it was probably very traumatic for them as well to then be taken away from from those organizations. Did they tell you anything about what that was like um, wh when they found out that that they would then have to leave and, and go back to their families or, or just leave in general? Exactly. Uh, uh, maybe I should say something about Colombia first, because the, Colombia and Nepal were the processes were a bit different. They were both uh, separated from the adult soldiers, those who were minors. But uh, um, it was maybe, it was particularly brutal, I would say, in, in, in Colombia. And some of those I interviewed, they, they said that they were so nervous. They were extremely afraid about what was going to happen to them. So some of them even thought they might get 
they were going to be taken somewhere to get killed. And uh, it, so it was actually traumatizing for some of them. And um, they said that, like, one of them said that the Red Cross came to, to the place and they used three days to try to convince them to go. Uh, and still when they left, they were, uh, they felt bad. Uh, so <clears throat> uh, at, at least for some of them, it was traumatizing. I think for some it was uh, difficult, but not traumatizing. But, uh, so it, but in Colombia, they were taken to interim care centers. Uh, these were centers that were set up by UNICEF. And, um, uh, but it was mainly run by Colombian uh, agencies. Um, so um, they had some time there. And after three months, then they were sent back to their families or they had some choices to, or to go to a foster home or some relative. And most of them, it didn't work out with the family because they were... Um, uh, there was some reason why they had run away from the family in the first time. And this, you see it when they try to go back. Um, some, some, uh, some wouldn't even go because they had been abused by their parents. Others came back to extreme poverty and they became the one who had to try to support the family instead of the family supporting them because they were so poor. There were drugs in the area, other armed groups, the local community didn't didn't want them because in Colombia, very much because of security. Um, in Nepal, I would say that um, they stayed a bit longer in the cantonments because the process took much longer time there. But when they finally uh, went back to the local communities, they were extremely stigmatized. Uh, Nepal, even worse than Colombia uh, on that aspect, and particularly the females. So one female told me, for example, she said that they told me that you are no longer the daughter of the community. So they came with expressions like that. And, she, and several of them said that they hate us. Mm. Uh, and my older friends no longer greet me. And, 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 the, and the, the young females also fell back to very traditional um, work. They had to do cleaning and that kind of things in houses. Mm. And also one aspect to it was that they returned without any economic resources because these were given to the adult soldiers, but not to the, the minors. So they didn't even, if they had come with some money to invest in projects in the local community, at least, it would have made a difference, I think. But they came without any, any money. And there was even one horrible uh, aspect in uh, Nepal, let me use that uh, expression, because they were they the minors who did not get economic compensation and were separated from the adults, they were um, termed or labeled disqualified. And the UN, after a while, they discovered that it wasn't quite good to use this term because it was stigmatizing, it was insulting. Uh, and this was so horrible for the miners there that they um, uh, they told me that they will do anything to get rid of that that label because it uh, it was insulting. It made them feel that 
the, the efforts they've done during the war was nothing worth. So, well, among, among the miners who went back there, there were a few that, that it worked out with the family, but the majority, for the majority, it, it, it didn't actually. So, um, and one of your specific angles in your research um, is gender. And so if we could just go back a bit, because I'm thinking one of the main threads that, that you talk about is autonomy and agency and the idea that even though they're minors, they can still make their own choices. And when we talk about your policy recommendations, we'll get to this, but you do talk a lot about how they should have that um, opportunity to make decisions for themselves. But I think also for girls, um, and women, but in this case, girls, minors, um, that's also a major theme in their lives. So in terms of the autonomy or agency, was that one of the reasons that they also wanted to stay with with these groups? Yes, I think uh, <clears throat> clearly, because they had taken this decision to go there. That was what they had found as the best option in their life at that time. And, and and some of them also felt like the the guerrilla group had now become like when you asked the, the miners from FARC, for example, when you asked them about their family, they said, FARC is my family. This is my family. Mm. So they had their own definitions of their situation. And they also, some of, several of them directly expressed that they had not been listened to, that nobody wanted to hear their story. Uh, one one uh, of the miners from Nepal said, we were just, nobody listened to us. We were just uh, given the bu- money for the bus ticket and put on a bus and, and, and that, that was it after so many years. Uh, so um, I think uh, both from the international organization side, the UN uh, and other actors in the field, there is a need to simply ask them because there is a reason why they came in the first hand and and ask them what what they think about their future it might be that if asked some of them said yes i will i would like to go try to go back to my family but i don't know if it will work and if not i will have the option to go back to the group and and i want to keep contact with the group because also in FARC, for example, uh, in, in Colombia, sorry, uh, when they were at these interim centers, they were not allowed to have visits from FARC. They were really, the state played a very strong role in Colombia in this process. So several of them were not even allowed to have their mobile phones. Some spoke with FARC on the mobile phone. And, and among them were also females who had become pregnant and had... Uh, their boyfriend in FARC, who, whom, from whom they were separated. Uh, and so, for example, one, um, I also talked with a lot of organizations when I was in Colombia, and one of them said to me that she had seen one of these who had been separated from FARC um, trying to meet with her boyfriend from FARC, FARC uh, um, kind, kind, kind of clandestinely or, or, or in hiding to do that uh, because she was not supposed to be with FARC because she was a minor. So there are 
really complete neglect of their agency, I would say, in the way they've been treated. Yeah, and one of the um, topics that came up last year when we had our pre-O annual peace address with Hajar Sharif and Ilwad Elman was the idea that uh, young people, because the theme was youth, peace, and security, that young people are involved in in wars and in conflicts, and then they should also be involved in the solutions for those things. And it sounds like a similar situation here that even though they are minors, they are part of it and they should be part of the, the I don't know, conclusion or, or resolution as well. And so I guess that brings me to my last question, which is what policy recommendations you have. Um, maybe you can highlight a few of your main points, which we've touched on a little bit already. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're right. I have altogether 15 recommendations, so it would be too much to go into all of them. But I think there are some very crucial ones, um, particularly talking about respecting the agency of the minors, uh, listening to them. Uh, and uh, one which is also very important is that there should be a real choice if they want to stay with the armed group or be separated, and that the choice should be respected, uh, because I think that was part of the problem, that in theory there was a choice, but it was there was pressure and it was not respected. And, and then I also have um, recommendations that... Uh, they should not be pressured to return to the family. And particularly, uh, one should take into consideration that this may be difficult for the females. Thank you so much, Venka. And we'll also link to your policy brief as well. And uh, I hope that people will take the time to read the report if that's something relevant to them, because uh, you've done some amazing groundbreaking research. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trickhauber. Music by Martin Dunnemel.